0: What am I going to confess to here? Good Lord. Oh, something I hope.
1: Andrew Coyne is the new editor of the National Post's editorial and opinion pages, There are just two national newspapers in this country. The National Post is one of them, and Andrew is the guy who gets to say who gets their say. He will join me to talk about it in a moment. Uh, But first, a reminder, this Friday, January 9th, I will be hosting a live taping of Canada Land at the Hamilton Public Library at 7 p.m. Tickets are free. They are now available to everyone, not just Canada Land patrons. To get yours, go to CanadaLandShow.com, and I will throw up a link. Last thing before we begin, an update on something I asked about last week. I requested your input uh, as to how to handle ads on this show as we move forward. Got a lot of thoughtful response on that. And most of you... Most of you uh, who took the time to write in said that you're okay with ads as long as there aren't too many of them, depending on who they're coming from, and as long as you know that they are ads, and there were a few other points uh, that got brought up as well. I will be posting a Canada Land ad policy soon on the website. If you want uh, to contribute to the drafting of that, please send in your thoughts on the topic. In the meantime, I have pre-sold a bunch of ads, as previously mentioned, that were uh, rewards for Patreon subscribers, and you'll be hearing the first one today. Today, so don't freak out. Okay, back with Andrew Coyne in a moment. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Brendan Azim, Lindsay L, Carol Wainio, Jack Manchester, Brian Crockett, Stephen Finnegan, Nally Weetlactuk. David Ma, James Goldie, Doug McDonald, and Mark Bylock, author of a new book of liquor reviews called The Whiskey Cabinet, which you can buy on Amazon. On a recent morning, Mark stopped by the Canada Land studio, and he brought alcohol, which is always welcome. All right. This is how we're starting the day, man. And you just poured from this really nice little bottle. I think it's been aged for like 11 years, almost 12. This is a 12-year-old bourbon. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
0: Oh, that's delicious. So you get a lot of rye on that. Very, It's a rye-heavy bourbon.
1: Um, so you get the spicy nose, but mostly you get that vanilla from that wood. How much whiskey did you drink in writing this book? I last count was about 380 different whiskeys over the last year. So it was a lot. Sponsor for today's episode is The Whiskey Cabinet, a book by Mark Bylock. Thanks again, Mark. <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help, and one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself... And because you listen to the show, you get ten percent off of your first month at betterhelp.com/slash Canadaland. Once again, it's better dot com. along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2, along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Canada That is drinkag1.com drinkag1.com/Canadaland. Canada Land. Check it out. You got your Trinity College sweater on? I do. So Trinity College, you were at Trinity College at the same time as Jim Belsilli, Malcolm Gladwell, Tony Clement, and Nigel Wright. And Adam McGowan. And Adam McGowan.
0: Yeah. Did you guys party? Uh, Tony Clement was not at Trinity. No? As a, no, I don't think so. But uh, but they he was, at, he was at U of T. He was at U of T. Yeah. It was – I mean I, probably everybody thinks – I take it we're, we're already recording. Are we? We're recording. Yeah. Uh, I think probably everybody always thinks that when they were at university was the sort of golden age kind of thing. But it, it was a pretty cool crowd and it was an interesting – uh, place to go. I'd gone to the University of Manitoba my first couple of years yeah. and then I served – which was – you know, it's a great place but it's a, c- a commuter campus. So you drive to the edge of town. You take your courses and you go home. Trinity, I was in residence uh, and it was just the, like joining a cult or something in the best sense. It was just a, a really interesting place with a lot of interesting people and a great kind of culture of eccentricity. One of the things I really cherished about Trinity was kids who might have been kind of misfits somewhere else. Got to be stars. At Trinity. It was a place that kind of almost cur- encouraged and celebrated people who were kind of odd and quirky.
1: That's the romantic idea, I guess. Is like, I mean, Gladwell's from where's he from? Like rural Elmira, I think, yeah. Ontario, yeah. So like that, you're you're a weirdo in high school, and then you kind of come into your own when you.
0: It, it was that kind of place, and and uh, I think it's there's sort of a sense of humor about the place because it's you know in some ways a preposterous place with all of its Oxford traditions and things, uh, and you either you either get that for what it is you either take that as a good joke Yeah. Uh, I always say there's three types of people there's, there's one kind of person who says oh isn't this marvelous this is exactly the kind of fake Oxford you know, experience I've been looking for there's a second type of person who goes, "Well, this doesn't make any sense. How's this going to get me a job?" You know. And then there's a third type of person that goes, "Well, okay, this is kind of funny and goofy, and let's just uh, have fun with it."
1: You're there. I am here. You got I think four it's years,
0: like eighty you percent know. of the people there were, were in that zone. I would say,
1: I can't do this biographical interview. That's not. We're, you're here to be vetted. This is <laughs> the conceit of an interview like this is you're stepping into this position. Right. The job starts on Monday. Yes. You
0: buy new slacks. Did I buy new slacks? You buy new slacks. Who
1: says slacks? Buy some trousers. <laughs> so, okay. The, the idea is that there are two national newspapers in the country and you are going to be editing the opinion section of, of, of one of them. So you are an opinion maker who is, is going to be incredibly powerful in this role to set the course of what people think about. I don't know that that's true anymore. Yeah. Like, is that is that, does that ring true to you? Is that, and then I'm supposed to
0: vet you because now it's, these, these are very consequential decisions. Uh, Well, we can proceed with the vetting. Uh, I don't think it was ever that true and it's certainly not that true now. Yeah, Uh, I mean any – the media in general, I think the power of the media, I think, is always overstated. I'm always struck by how often there will be kind of a media consensus on one view and the public will march resolutely in the other direction. Uh, Any one organization within that, I think – I don't think any of them have any real institutional status anymore. There's just so many different – uh, outlets for people. Um, and The Post, you know, we're, we're uh, in some ways a kind of a, 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 like a small startup kind of thing. I mean, we, we, we had our glory days when we started out. And we had money coming out of our ears. Yeah. Uh, now we're operating on significantly less resources. But I still think, uh, to toot our horn a little bit, I think we still, th- still think we've got the best writers. Um, and so I don't think you can view it as being, you know, power or anything. But it's, it'll be fun, I think, to work with some good writers and see, see if I can find some more.
1: Looking at your roster here, some names, uh, Conrad Black, Bob Fulford, uh, Terrence Corcoran, Rex Murphy. I-, I read them all with interest. Yeah. Do you think maybe you need another old white guy? I'm just I mean, just to round <laughs> it out, maybe you need That's another.
0: That's probably me, I guess, as, as time goes on. <laughs> Uh, look, I mean, the, these are voices of experience. Uh, they're not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but they're people who have, I think, a lot of insight, born of being old. I hate this idea that let's chuck out everybody who's old because what the hell can they tell us? Well, actually, they can tell us a bit, having been around for seventy years. You don't want to be only that, and you, you know, you conveniently overlooked uh, Chris Selly, uh, Robin Urbach, uh, Jesse Klein. These are these are good young writers yeah. who I think bring uh, bring a real sort of sharp. They are,
1: but roots, it is roots. super white. It's a super white
0: roster. Sure. Yeah. Is that a problem? Uh, Of course it is. Uh, The question is, you know, do you just go out and and just completely change it overnight? No, you look for good voices. And and I agree that you always want to be conscious of diversity. I don't think you can make that your priority above good writing.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a problem I have here too. I can't blame it on the industry or the culture, you know, and you don't want to just make it tokenism. But then you go outside and you look at Canada and then you look at the National Post column. It doesn't match.
0: That's right. I don't think we have any kind of public responsibility in that regard. We're not a public body. We're just a newspaper. Uh, uh, it would be preferable if you had a more diverse uh, roster of writers. Absolutely, of course, it would be. But I think you, you know, for whatever combination of reasons, that's been the that's been the result. I think the 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 way forward has to be you focus on good lively, interesting writers. You try to get a diversity of viewpoints as well to some extent, but again, we're the post, right? We're not going to be completely ecumenical about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've, got a, you've got a readership you're trying to reach and you've got a point of view you're trying to get across um, and you've got your own preferences and biases as well. But my overriding bias before anything else is good writing, um, which I think is, is the passport to everything else.
1: Maybe you don't even have to do any lip service to this. I mean the readership is super white.
0: I just think in the service of a good writing and good interesting viewpoints, you will be wanting to look further afield. I agree with that. You yeah. don't want to just – you don't want to just have people all come from the same background, the same viewpoint, et cetera. But I think if your if north star is uh, – get people who have got something to say on issues that matter and can express it in a way that people want to read um, and, and if you're – Making sure you get outside your your normal networks and all those kinds of things, i you know, I think that over time it's going to take care of itself. Now that's not an answer society wide, but we're not society. We're just a paper,
1: and you're the post which is a weird enterprise, and you're you're at the weird part of the post because <laughs> thank you The secret of the post is that it's totally left. And people who come out of, who are graduates of universities who live in cities that leans. Incredibly left. Journalism itself—it's not about one paper or the other—leans left, and in every kind of poll of, of the actual people involved in it, the Post was always interested in young cheap labor, and young people tend to lean left. Then you got the opinion—the opinion guys and it's mostly guys, yeah. uh, that has to, like, hold up this idea that this is a conservative newspaper or a right-leaning newspaper. And so you've got, like, just a stable of and, – and they're the most colorful characters often. But everybody else, I felt like if you actually hung out with posties, you're not getting, like, a, a super right-wing crowd.
0: Yeah, it depends. I mean, all these definitions, I think, are somewhat fluid. For example, is it left-wing or right-wing to think that Uber should be allowed to set up shop in, in, in Toronto? It's kind of, you know – Shaking up the system, so maybe you think it's a left thing like that, but it's free market, and so maybe you think it's a yeah. right-wing thing. Uh, I think these things are, are – There are other reasons with Uber that it's, it's moved away from the left, but – Well, it's got kind of douchey owners, yeah. yeah. But, but I think the more broad thing is to, uh, to me, the biggest, um, most important political divide is not between left and right. It's between people who have a sense of humor and people who don't. Yeah. I have found this huh. to be universally true. The Post was always uh, kind of a guilty pleasure with the left because it was funny and it was provocative and it was lively and it didn't take itself too seriously and it had good writing. I hate to keep harping on that. Trevor Wayne Gretzky, uh, right out the gate. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we had, we had Mark Stein we, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, I think that's, that's – uh, that's, you know, it's always been said. Humor is kind of insidious. It kind of gets past people's defenses. Uh, it's a worldview. It's it's you either take the tragic view of the universe or you take the comic view of the universe. In my view, uh, and people who take the comic view of the universe are the people I want to hang out with.
1: I would agree that left-right is no longer really a defining mechanism, but I think it's more young and old is the big define, dividing line
0: in this country at this point. Well, again, there's old young people and there's young old people. This is true too. Yeah.
1: Um, Let's talk about the media in, in broader terms and, and you and I – we never had a conversation before. But there was a brief moment where our, our universes – there was some friction on Twitter where I felt like there was like a glitch in the matrix and something opened up. And this was right when I was starting Canada Land and Harper was giving his year-end uh, interviews to his cherry-picked you know, right. f- favorite journalists. And uh, Mark Kennedy was interviewing Stephen Harper and he touched on the Senate scandal. And Harper wriggled around it and and then he just carried on with whatever 15 minutes allotment, allotment he had. And you tweeted something about that. They were like, no, st- like, stop. Ask him what he knew when. Ask him why he initially supported right and then he moved away. Ask – like the, his story does not make sense. It doesn't add up and no journalist has ever – I mean you, I can't imagine a similar situation in the States where Obama's chief of staff was involved in a bribery scandal and the press just stops asking questions about a story. And And, and – and, for a moment, I felt that same outrage on your part, not directed at Harper, who of course is going to try to get away from that, but at Kennedy.
0: Well, I, I don't want to pick on Mark.
1: No, you didn't. Yeah. I mean, initially that was the suggestion, but yeah. then I, I, I tweeted you, I said, Andrew, come on my show, talk about what that interview should have been. <laughs> right. And you immediately said, no, this is, my critique is not for the interviewer, it's for the interviewee. And then you wrote a very funny column where you imagined yourself as the, as the like, this is what it would have been like if I had interviewed Harper. <laughs> and, and and you know, you, you directed it at, at the, the PM. And- I I feel like there was a missed opportunity there. And, like, why did you back away from that? Why can't we talk about what should be asked in in those interviews?
0: We can. People do all the time. I mean, with all due respect to media critics, media are critics of themselves all the time uh, individually. Maybe we should step back from the whole industry and look at it occasionally. But people are always sniping at each other. Um, And I didn't necessarily feel I I needed to be contributing to that. I also don't think – I mean, as much as I was complaining on the day – uh I think if you do have I mean I it's fun for me to do my imaginary call but if you actually have the job of of you know doing those inter- those year-end interviews and you've got x number of minutes You've got an editor who wants uh, X number of questions asked. You've got news you're supposed to elicit from it. I'm not sure if actually it is your role at that time to play prosecutor, as much as you or I might like to fantasize about that. I think your job as an interviewer is to get news.
1: Well, I, the whole thing is, is stage managed yeah. to stop you from having and, and that and kind may, of interview.
0: And maybe you shouldn't do it under on, on those terms. Maybe, maybe you should say we're not going to interview the prime minister. I mean I always feel this way about – uh, the 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 tours during the election campaign, which are completely useless. Yeah. And if we would all just, as an industry, say we're not going, uh, then maybe we could shame them out of it. But every, you know, they play us off against each other, and we each want to sure. get the access, and so we wind up going when there's
1: no other opportunity. I would argue that 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 y- you have to ask that
0: question. Yeah. I think on the on the specific thing about the harper and the and, 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 and the whole Duffy issue, it may be that people are waiting for the Duffy trial. And there may be a kind of a tacit sense of okay we don 't have to keep chasing him because it 's going to come out then i don 't know uh, uh, at some, is that what you think Is that why people have laid off i i 'm just guessing i, I or it 's just fatigue. you know people just don 't feel they can keep they think maybe it 'll be rude or something I mean there may be a Canadian. Politeness kicks in that can you keep asking the same question for month after month? I don't know. But it may be that people are – at the back of their minds are thinking – It's not like it was asked that much. No, no. That's right. I mean the larger question is uh, how much access does the media have to the prime minister in general? And even larger question is how much access does parliament have to him? If he wants to play hide and seek with the media, in a sense that's his privilege. He should pay the price for it in that he should be viewed as being very remote and aloof and secretive as a result of it. He has no right at all to play hide-and-seek with parliament. Uh, that's, he's constitutionally answerable to parliament. And it's the degree to which parliament can't lay a glove on him that is, is really to me is the more disturbing thing. That's supposed to be what makes our system better than the Americans. Yeah. In a way, their press gallery is kind of their substitute parliament, right? Because the congress can't ask him questions. <laughs> our, our parliament is supposed to be the, the one that does the job and they're institutionally uh, and to some extent uh, individually uh, don't have the competence for it
1: do we have to pick which one to be outraged by? I, I, <laughs> no, fair enough. But equally I, egregious and as the press, I think that we have, you know, it's clear that we, I mean, the fact that we haven't been able to make a united stand about this, as, I, I mean, you can just watch the, the level of influence and access the press has had just get diminished and diminished and diminished. It's, it's not like it's, there's no conspiracy theory to it. He's been incredibly successful
0: in, in
1: crippling and defanging the press, you know, like is there?
0: Yeah, and, and I, 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 I've moved a little bit on that. I think when he, when he first did that, like, there was a whole contretemps over who should get to decide the order of the questions in the press gallery. And I, at the time, I thought, well, you know, the press is being a little precious about this. Again, it's it, every leader, every party leader gets to choose his media strategy. If this is his, he'll pay the price for it and we don't have to make that big a to do about it. But I think as you – as all these things have added up over time, I've come to, to group them a little bit more together and just to start to see it a bit more as being of a piece with – uh, evading parliament. Yeah. At, at some point, if you, if you're that secretive over such an extended period of time, I think it crosses over at some point into being almost a, a constitutional issue.
1: I crossed paths with you a little bit at McLean's. I was uh, blogging there when you were writing there. You were an editor on the masthead. Yeah. Were you an editor? Not really. So you haven't been an editor since like university. university. Yeah. Okay. So what, why do you want, why do you want this job?
0: Uh, it's, I think, an interesting challenge. It's something new. It's, it's. Uh, it will test my people skills. Got to work with with other people rather than sitting in cafes alone. And um, I think that's good for the soul. And, yeah. And and, and uh, I think it's an interesting thing to to be molding a section and to try to, you know, think of the different combination of voices and writers that you want on the page in that day to to see if if you can. Uh, make it in, uh, you know as lively and as interesting as you possibly can. I think these are just all interesting challenges. I mean, I'm not doing that to the exception of the writing. I'm going to be doing that in addition to, uh, so that'll be a challenge in terms of managing my day. Uh, you know, it's just it's it's good to be doing something you're a little scared of. Yeah, you know,
1: is there like do you have like a vision? Do you feel like that uh, besides just looking for good writing and looking for some fresh talent,
0: is there some direction you want to move the thing into? Uh, that'll evolve over time. I mean, you have to be. Uh, the, the short answer is, is no in the sense I'm not about to make it into some totally different uh, um, uh, direction or anything. I mean the, the, you're, you have a responsibility to the paper as a whole, yeah. to the readership and to the, everybody else. And, and so your movements have to be gradual. I think it's more just in general I want it to be as intelligent, um, as funny, as um, um, well-informed as I possibly can make it. Um and I think there's always room for improvement in, in any paper in, in that regard. And I think we're starting from a pretty high base, but but I'd like to take it even higher.
1: In the states, there's you know columnists can become stars, and they and they traditionally have played a role in moving papers. You know, in in, in a newspaper industry that is still interested in, in such things, you would have columnists who papers would bid on. And there was a brief moment here where. There were certain personalities and, you know, Christy Blatchford comes to mind where, you know, they, they command big salaries because love them or hate them, people read them. Yeah. Are you – is that still even a thing? Is that in play? Are you looking for the next hot columnist that people are going to connect with their personality and, and need to read everything that they write? So, you know, and is there pressure – like is there even pressure – at a big staff meeting at the Post, like, we got to get circulation up. We need more hits. We, like, I, don't, I can't even imagine that happening these days.
0: Well, uh, yes, it does. I mean, not, not in as crude a sense, but obviously we're very conscious of <laughs> circulation and readership. Yeah. Uh, and particularly online readership in, in this day and age. And actually everything I've seen and heard is, is that indeed uh, columns, voices like that um, uh, are critical to that. People can get their news now in six billion places like just in terms of straight news like what happened yesterday or what happened today. Um, that's, that's a commodity now. Uh, now, good, serious, deep, well-researched shoe leather reporting is still going to be – going to be a premium on that and there's going to be a premium on people who can write in an in a insightful and, and provocative and funny way. The thing all of us have to do, those of us who are trying to get paid for this – and it's – a good thing is we now have to justify why we should get paid because there's a bunch of other people out there who will do what we do for free. Mm-hmm. And in some of the cases, they do it better than we do if they have a specialized knowledge, for example. Uh, so that's good. That means that we're all actually having to, to think harder and work harder uh, to, to 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 justify why we should get paid to, to do what we do. And I, as I say, I think research is one way we can justify We can – we can spend the time that maybe a blogger can't spend on the issue and and uh, and uh, just general writing ability.
1: So if you are conscious of traffic and hits and the influence of your columnist, does that mean – does that mean you're going to get back on Twitter? Does that mean you're like going to be back on social media? Because that's that's my point of entry. I don't read the post every day necessarily. I read what people are reading.
0: Yeah. Uh, we'll see about, that, about the specifics of that. But yeah, I mean it, it, we're all having to be conscious of – People are approaching us in different ways. They're not necessarily picking up the print paper, although I would like to lead a print revival. I think we need to reintroduce the kids to newsprint, to so the glories of newsprint. What are you talking about? final is making a big comeback in music. Polaroid cameras are the hottest things now in cameras. We got to we got to reintroduce the, the 18-year-olds to the glories of the, the broad-sheet newspaper opening up the two-page spread and seeing the world at a glance. And I think if we can pitch this as this is actually the latest technology, we can hoodwink them.
1: You, this is 2015. <laughs> you just got a big job at a newspaper
0: and you're making... You're, you're, I'm saying digital last, Jesse. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, that,
1: would, that would be it for you
0: in yeah, a lot of yeah, newspaper industries. Oh,
1: like uh, That would be it. You just did it. You just killed your career.
0: But no Obviously, we have to be... Uh, where our readers are. And, yeah. and a lot of our readers are online and that's a continuing challenge is is uh, to get them to read you, to get them to pay for you, to get All oh, These are all great challenges. Some things don't change though, okay? And, and uh, I think um, the processing power of the human mind doesn't change, i.e. it takes time to figure things out. I remember when uh, during the first Gulf War, which was supposedly the great coming out for CNN, right? This is back in 91. Uh, uh, I remember watching like a lot of people did, watching CNN for 12 hours, goggle-eyed at this whole spectacle. And I can remember at the end of the day saying, I can't wait to to read the paper tomorrow so I can find out what happened. Yeah. Because it's all coming at you in real time. You have no idea which is important and which isn't. And you need to sift through that. And the only way the human mind can do that is by taking eight or 10 or 12 hours to think about it. You get a lot of heat from TV, but you don't get a lot of light. Exactly. So yeah. I think there's still going to be – there's always going to be a role for that. It's always going to be a role for good writing and for insight and analysis and, and deep research uh, in whatever platform it arrives. Um, I'm actually optimistic in the long run because I think I think the missing thing that people have not been paying enough attention to is is the technology, is, is, the, is the actual physical reading experience. Reading is a physical experience and I think it's part of my love of newsprint. But it's more generally – <clears throat> I think part of the reason we've had trouble getting people to pay to read stuff on a computer is reading on a computer is a really lousy experience. Yeah. It's awful, especially once you start reading on a tablet, right? You you start realizing this is way better. And and this is with the crappy tablets that we have now. Imagine how much better they're going to be three, four, five years from now if we can survive until
1: Yeah, but we had this uh, – the tablet was going to come and save us. And it was going to save and the magazine, and it didn't.
0: It, of course. it's It's been it, – like everything else, it gets oversold, and it will find its niche. But I, I can tell you just – Observing my own behavior, I'm now a subscriber on my iPad to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Financial Times of London. I've never subscribed to any of those papers before yeah, because I didn't want stacks of papers in my house and I couldn't stand reading them on a computer. But what happens when, I, when I'm reading them on even today's crappy tablets is – and mostly because of the instantaneous page loads is you, you find yourself kind of sticking with a single publication for longer huh. rather than jumping all over the place like a madman. You start rediscovering, at least in my case, the pleasures of browsing through a single publication and kind of getting the whole kind of you know, holistic view from that paper. Uh, uh, and at, at the end of that sort of 45 minutes or whatever, you go, OK, I'll pay for that. I agree with you, but you're wrong. <laughs> We're wrong together? I'm no, just saying I, I, it's, it's... as the tablets get thinner and lighter <laughs> and bigger and, and yeah. better battery life and more like paper, uh, uh, I think they're gonna, I think that's going to be a big – I think that will affect how people read things and what they choose to read and what they choose to pay for. Oh, the technology totally affects how we read things.
1: And I agree with you that the experience of reading on these these glowing screens, the phones and the the computers is a lousy experience and it changes. It's going to get better. It's – I, I I don't know if better or worse. It's not going to like the idea that it's going to get more like it was as the technology progresses. I I, I don't see it happening. I, I think I think it's going to become some other new thing. You well, know.
0: maybe, but I but I I do think we're probably going to see larger screens because eventually we're, we're, you'll be able to fold them. For example. Yeah. Uh, larger screens give you better layout possibilities. One of yeah. the, one of the crippling things about today's tablets is they're really simple, obvious layout possibilities. Right. Um, that – to come back to why I like a, a great broadsheet paper is all kinds of thought and, 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 and decision-making has gone into how do we lay out the pages. We're, we're giving you visual cues about yeah. which things you, re- you You really need to read, right?
1: Absolutely. It's, it's a dying art. But I think that you're looking at, at the surface of sort of the meat and potatoes of how you – know, and that, that stuff is important once you're immersed in the experience. But yeah. the trickier thing for me is when your brain becomes accustomed to – the constant stimulation of what's the next article. Like I'm going through my morning, this, and it's the same time of day that I used to read the paper. Now I'm going through my Twitter feed, my Facebook, my, all my social media links. What's the next article? What's the next article? And, and what's my next email that's going to come in? And it all comes in the same category as what's the next stimulus. Yeah. Breaking from that addiction to or expectation of the next stimulus and taking a breath and immersing yourself in a longer experience is not going to be a function of a bigger screen. It's going to be whether people en masse Find value in that. And I think that it just – it exists in a completely different category of your day and I think it's gone. for the I mean it's a niche thing. It's going to be for people who want it and yeah, seek it, it out.
0: Well, it always was a niche thing. Maybe that's true. The thing we have to remind ourselves is only a small minority of people have ever read anything. Yeah. <laughs> and only a small minority of them have ever read anything worth reading. Yeah. Uh, so that's just the crooked timber of humanity. Uh, you're absolutely right that we're in a particular period right now where we're just all entranced by the the, the, the river of stuff coming coming past us, and to some extent that will remain the case. So you, obviously you have to make yourself available to people in whatever um, arena and whatever format that is is most congenial to them. I'm just saying what we haven't been providing uh, in the in the digital format until lately has been a reading experience where you want to immerse yourself in it for a long period of time, and and if we can do that, that's helpful in terms of getting people to pay. I think, yeah. and it's also, I think, helpful in terms of of uh, getting good writers to meet good readers. Uh, that that you need that kind of that kind of that kind of arena. You know?
1: I, uh, I want to make sure I ask you for some advice while you're here. Uh, I need some CBC advice
0: because
1: <laughs> yes. I'm amazed with what you've done. This is here's what you've said about the CBC. You said the CBC will likely go on drifting and declining for years to come. It will limp on purposelessly. You've said it's neither popular nor good. You've said it should be privatized. Many no, times. I never said that. You didn't say. That. I thought I you said, said, said it should become. Uh, maybe yeah. I. I, I, that's, that's a, I said. It, we should put it on pay. We should put it on, make it HBO. Yeah. So I jumped and said that he's saying it you should privatize be, it. It could
0: still be publicly owned, but it would be it would be deriving its revenues from its viewers rather than from the taxpayers.
1: Okay, and you and you've, you've since. Uh, Backed away from that as the technology has no, changed.
0: Wow. Well, th- th- yes, I mean, it, <laughs> that's right. Is will people will people want to pay for any channel yeah. in the years to come, private or public? Yeah. I mean, is the whole channel model disaggregating down to just people wanting to pay for individual programs? I, I do think the whole network model is in, is in jeopardy. I think the whole. Cable TV model is in jeopardy ultimately. I mean, someday Google's going to roll out of bed and say, you know what, we're going to give everybody free Wi Fi. Yeah. Because it'll be good for our business. I think you're right about that. And at that point, because that's supposed to be Bell and Rogers' last redoubt, right? Everything else is they're losing. But the well, we still control the pipes. They're moving
1: everybody to the pipes, and they're just going to come with white space or with their their balloons in the sky. They're just going to blast internet to everybody. But okay, you've skillfully taken me away from my point here. (laughs) I want advice. You have said all of these nasty things about the CBC that happen to be true. You've also criticized the at issue uh, panel for being too uh, uh, fixated on strategy and not about the actual substance of policy. You are on the at issue panel. You've been saying all these things about the CBC. You've been on the at issue panel since 2005. Meanwhile, I'm out advocating for public. Broadcasting on Sun News TV, how do you say such things <laughs> about CBC
0: and still be pals with Peter Mansbridge and go on CBC every week and get a paycheck from CBC? Well, I, I like to think I'm in in a certain way a friend of the CBC, mm-hmm. that, and I think as time goes on, uh, more and more people to CBC are less and less defensive mm-hmm. about where the world they're in. I mean, I think they've been in that world for a long time, but I think it's becoming clear that. Uh, uh, you know The old models are breaking down. The old model is breaking down for private television as well. And maybe that's helpful in getting people to kind of you know, lower the temperature and lower the, 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 the barricades in this. <clears throat> we can probably have a better discussion now about where TV is going generally. Uh, but one part of that is I do think the, the public television model, as we might have known it in the 60s, just doesn't apply anymore. And I, I think you can be a friend of the CBC in the sense of there's lots of good, talented people working there who could probably be doing better work in a different setting, in a different setup, in a different Financial. funding, a different funding model, but also a different corporate model. Do, does it make sense to have this kind of if you want to make a program? Does it make sense to have to pass your proposal up a, up a line of VPs? The bureaucracy, I agree with you completely. Yeah, could, but there, could there be more disaggregated models in keeping had, with a different funding Look, model.
1: you've been making these sort of libertarian suggestions about the CBC uh, for some time. And I just like – look, I'm not an ideologue about anything. But I, I just feel like in the media environment that we have now where, where just news as a business is cratering and if we can agree that it's just really important – that people know what's going on, that somebody is actually collecting and reporting the news and maybe even analyzing it, I don't have any faith that the market will just sort of correct and and that will get done no matter what I think it's entirely possible that as media becomes less lucrative and self-sufficient that other interests might exert you know influence over a paper like the National Post and the public will be underserved. Like is it so terrible if if we just agree as a society to say like hey you know 40 bucks a year per person is not so much to ensure that there is a news service that that represents the public that that's here to make sure that people have a chance of knowing what's going on. As
0: that that's just a good idea, isn't it? If you think that's uh, actually what happens, first of all, um, first of all, is it a public good? Is it something that that is required to? That the only way you can fund it is through taxes. We never said that about newspapers. Yeah. We always made this distinction between newspapers and television. Somehow we made this case for television, which in the early days of television you could make because you couldn't charge people directly for it. You always could for newspapers. Only a minority of them were ever any good, but it was a model that worked. You had, you had enough diversity of, of, of viewpoints, et cetera, that, that people felt they were being reasonably well served by their print media. I think people's more, more complaints were with, were with television. Uh, at one point, the the um, the Kent Commission in the early '80s uh, actually advocated that we should subsidize newspapers to make them better newspapers. And for the first and I think only time in the history of corporate Canada, uh, the industry turned them down. Uh, and I'm frankly glad that we did. Wow! If we'd taken the money, the media turned down government money in yeah. Canada. Absolutely. That happened. It happened. Now we, they get money in other ways <laughs> through the postal subsidy, but it was these were direct subsidies to improve our journalism. Uh-huh. So. And if we'd taken the money, I guarantee you over time, we all would have accommodated ourselves to the idea of how can a newspaper possibly expect to produce good journalism without public funding? We would have taken that idea on board and we'd all write long essays about this and we'd become much more attuned to the idea that everybody should get subsidies in every industry. I think it would have corrupted us, frankly. So that's point one, point two. Point three is when you say the market, that's always this lovely disembodied alien force out there the market of course is us the readers and it's several different markets because there's a lot of different types of readers there's readers who want crap and there's readers who want good stuff and the people who want the good stuff whether it's if if they're able to pay for it will do so whether it's tv because that's what's happened with tv right the distinction i agree with you in television used to be in terms of quality between public and private the distinction now is between pay and free the good stuff is on pay the hbo model the bad stuff, the, the reality shows, et cetera, whether it's public or private, is on the free TV. Uh, so part of what makes for better art is a demanding audience. They're part of the artistic process in my view. And a demanding audience is typically one that's paying good money for it and wants to get uh, value for its experience.
1: I might draw a distinction between the uh, arts and culture funding and, and news, which, which is a service. Sort of independent of ratings if anyone's paying attention at the moment that just like it, it is being recorded. There is some sort of like office of accountability that has to exist. Well,
0: here's where I'm going to get relativist on you All though right. is the news, the service assumes there's kind of one – like we just need to fund one viewpoint that will tell us the unbridled, unvarnished true news. And the again, the crooked timber of humanity is well, – But you've got to do your best. Yeah, but the, to me the best is – let a hundred flowers bloom. Have as many different... Yeah, we've got like three flowers. That's the problem. Well, no, we don't. In, in, in news... We've got market you, As a consumer, you have never had more diversity of sources of news in the history of the world. Covering Canada? I mean, that's happening everywhere but this country. Even covering
1: Canada. There are less reporters covering Canada than there ever were. That's not true. If I look at Parliament Hill... We've what, lost 10,000 jobs in media over the last five and years.
0: And there's jobs being created as well. You're, you're looking at... I'm surprised at you, young man, you're looking at old media. You're looking at the at the the great old Where is the new media in this country? I just talked to a woman who's working for Vice News for example, Canadian startup. So
1: no, it's not really a
0: Canadian startup. It is, start it started in it's Montreal. It's initially a Canadian startup. Yeah. All
1: right, all right, all right. It is now a huge American company that like sets up a little franchise office
0: here. Okay, but I'm saying it's that the, the the growth is in those kinds of, of uh, media entities is going to be in those kinds of things, the the CTVs and the Globe and Mail,s et cetera, over time, those are not going to be the things that, that are going to be with us 10, 20, 30 years from now. We got If we want to survive, anyway, certainly, if we're in that end of things, we've got to think like a startup. Uh, I'm just saying there's more sources of news and opinion, not necessarily good news and opinion, but again, twas ever thus, than there's ever been. If I look at Parliament Hill, to, to take a more narrow slice, if I look at the reporting that's going on in Parliament Hill now, there are more good Young, conscientious, well-informed writers reporting on Parliament Hill than I can ever recall. There used to be a few overpaid people who phoned it in. They were the big-name Parliament Hill Gallery 30 years ago. Now you've got a bunch of people who are making next to nothing. They're underpaid. But my goodness, they're doing some good reporting.
1: Well, this is – we're going to hear more about this. I, I, I just interviewed the editor of uh, Blacklock's Reporter who says that you know, he's got reporters covering uh, committees and, and, and just sort of the fine-grained stuff in Ottawa.
0: And, and there's nobody else there, that there are fewer reporters uh, at those committees. they never used I, – when, when I was growing up, I don't remember there being anybody going to uh, – giving specific uh, uh, live reporting from committee hearings ever. Now it's – now you,
1: every straight committee, somebody's live tweeting. I don't know, Andrew. I mean like investigative stuff is less resource for. You know, the bureaus are closing. Like I, I, I think it's just plain that there's, there's, there's less uh, reporters, there's less jobs, there's less journalism than there ever has been before. Even opinion. Like there are certain opinions which are important, crucial opinions, debates that we need to be having that are incredibly underrepresented in the media. And with that, I got to ask you. Are you going to publish climate change deniers in the opinion pages of the National Post? I mean there are other news organizations like the BBC that have said, you know what? Everybody's entitled to their own opinion but you're not entitled to your own facts. Man-made climate change is a fact. We're not going to provide space for the skeptics anymore. So they're not going to give space to people who deny climate change. Are you going to do that?
0: Uh, I'm not going to say one way or the other. I'm going to, I'm going to look at each uh, presentation. I would not – let's put it that way. I don't have a total ban on that, no. There are – in my experience looking at that, there's lots of charlatans – Uh, on the quote-unquote skeptic side. And those people are not skeptics. They're ideologues. Mm -hmm. There are genuine skeptics. There are people who are not ideologues and not stupid and not crazy, and I don't write them all off. I'm sure they're nice, thoughtful people, but you can write their arguments off, can't you? Uh, I don't write the argument off entirely. I don't feel any need as a matter of religious certainty to say, I either believe in it or don't. The preponderance of evidence to me suggests that it is happening and that the mainstream explanation of it is the right one. I don't feel a need to say this is utterly certain and nobody can, can ever question it. We're talking about projections of things into, in decades into the future involving modeling the global climate, which is one of the most complex things we can possibly imagine. Generally speaking, it's hard to, to, to look at the uh, say the the preponderance of the of the scientific opinion in favor of it, but I'm not going to say if somebody's if somebody is credible and has a credible argument, on this I'm not going to completely write them off.
1: <laughs> You're sort of presenting yourself as a sort of like thoughtful, open minded guy who's saying, well, if there's somebody out there, I'll listen to them. The fact is, there are many people who are writing skeptical pieces denying man made climate change. Those opinions are totally overrepresented, and on the other side of things, which is backed by science,
0: we're not hearing so much. No, no, I, and I agree with that. It's always a judgment call. And all these things, it, it, there's always a danger on two directions. There's a danger of giving credibility who don't deserve it. So, for example, if the debate was about evolution, we've had a good 150 years of testing of that model. You'd have to go a long way to find anybody with any sort of credible uh, argument against. It. So uh, that would, the chances of anybody of, of that ever appearing are next to none.
1: <laughs> I'm glad there's not going to be the Scopes Monkey trial. Uh, it's uh, not going to happen. Detection.
0: So rest assured. All right. I'm just saying the, the, the danger there would be erring on the side of giving credibility to a crackpot. The danger with more contentious issues, and I've seen this with not just with global warming, but with a lot of issues where people want to decide there's only one view. I'll give you an example. The question of, of inequality of the 1%. Where a lot of people imported a lot of of arguments from the United States and says it's happening in Canada and there was an attempt, a brief attempt to try to use that word deniers on that debate as well. As time has gone on and as more statistics have been gathered, it's been very clear that we have a very different scenario in Canada. We do not have anything like the same degree of inequality that, that they have in the States. We have an issue. It's just not anything on the same scale. And over time, that room has been made for that argument. If we'd written that argument off, if we'd closed that door, we'd be sufficiently – significantly poorer intellectually in this country. So we've got to be careful about uh, closing doors and shutting down debates and deciding that somebody is, is non-cladable. What debate? The, the, the debate the – jury, the jury is still out on man-made climate change. Uh, no. In my view, the preponderance of evidence is in favor of it. It's not on the same scale, in my view, as evolution. Okay. I got to ask you the uncomfortable question.
1: Uh, You and Margaret Wente are board members of the Energy Probe Research Foundation. Is that a climate change denial group?
0: No. Uh, Larry Solomon, uh, the the founder of it, has uh, taken very strong views on this. Energy Probe is one of the first great uh, uh, free market environmental groups. It's had a huge influence in in general. I mean this is I think one of the great developments in the the latter part of the 20th century, early part of the 21st century is you've got a whole generation of environmentalists uh, who, this is why we have things like carbon taxes, for example. we got a whole generation of un- environmentalists who understand markets can work for the environment, properly harnessed. You know, prices, get, putting a price on things that were previously unpriced helps to encourage people to make greater use of resources. Well, Energy Pro was one of the groups that was really making those kinds of arguments. Larry's got a particular view uh, on global warming. His view is uh, man-made
1: climate change is not a threat. Yeah, so.
0: he, he, he's, he's come to a conclusion the whole thing's you know, who I don't agree with. Them. No, the more general thing is, is uh, uh, um, you know, sensible use of economic instruments to try to achieve environmental ends. Trevor uh,
1: Before you go, Andrew, I, I, I just got to take a shot at, at, at trying to figure you out here. I mean, you come from this esteemed Canadian family going back many generations, very important people in politics and public life. You could have gone into anything, but you've chosen for yourself like a ridiculous field. Right? Like you've chosen a field populated by absurd and angry people. You're a pundit. Now you're also uh, an editor of pundits and a pundit has to feign expertise on whatever topic comes up on any given day. You got to have three opinions. You got to gin up three opinions a week. You're paid to argue with people. You got to throw darts at whoever happens to be in power at the time. And you've been doing this for years and – Nobody seems to hate your guts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, right? do. I, no,
1: I mean there's been no big fuck up or controversy. Uh, you, you, you haven't called any, anybody a slut. You haven't uh, had any big plagiarism scandal. You haven't had to make any big uh, embarrassing public apology. I mean you've been very politic. I mean even, even leaving Twitter. I mean who does that? You had one of the biggest followings in the country. Who, what, what opinion person leaves Twitter? People are going to think that I'm kissing your ass right now. I am not. I, I, I'm serious. I find your your broad support deeply, deeply suspicious. suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> I keep suspecting to learn that your entire career has been this calculated epic preamble for a run at public office. Is that what you're playing at, Coin?
0: Uh, no. Uh, uh, you know they always say you're supposed to find your passion. You know, and I, I used to think, "Well, oh, God, you know, what's my passion?" And eventually, it dawned on me that that one of the things that's important to me and that you know gives me job satisfaction is I get to say what I think. I get to, if, if I can put it this way, I get to tell the truth for a living, at least as I see it. And so many people, that's not true, right? And I don't think I'd be happy if I had to sell something. Um, that's the job satisfaction for me is is trying to write. And I, my critics would certainly say I fail in this every day. But trying to write true sentences, uh, I think, is a is a relatively noble calling. It's, I, I long ago gave up any illusion that I would uh, have any influence on people. But uh, I actually think in this day and age and harkening back to some of the discussion we've been having, if you can get people to spend three minutes reading you, uh, that's, that's, that's tough enough. That's an achievement enough because you've got to make that three minutes worth their time. Uh, and that means you've got to tell them something they didn't know or you've you got to at least make yourself agreeable company. If you can at least uh, uh, provide something that people read that and go, OK, that was reasonably sensible, that, that's, a, that's a challenge enough. There's lots of ways in which you can screw that up. Striving for reasonably sensible. <laughs> that's, that's, that'll be on my epitaph.
1: <laughs> I, I guess it served you all well so far. Thank you for uh, – thanks for more than three minutes. Uh, you should go buy some slacks. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read them all. I respond when I can. I am on Twitter at jesse brown. The show's website is at canadalandshow.com. Check it now to get your tickets for our live event this Friday in Hamilton. The crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash Canada Land. I make this show with Christopher DeMello and Sean Craig, and Canada Land Shortcuts returns this Thursday morning. If you like this show, support it.